a good prayer to pray and one that God promises to answer. You can go ahead and be seated. Good morning, church. It is good to be with you. It's my favorite place to be on a Sunday morning, and I'm glad that we're gathered here to hear uh, from God's Word, the Word that we've already read and heard, that we've sung about, the gospel that transforms lives, and it's been most certainly given to us in His Word. And if you're just recently joining us or even visiting here this morning, I want to welcome you. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas, and you'll be helped in our time together if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 this morning as we continue to make our way through the second book of God's Word. Exodus chapter 2. Let's begin reading this morning at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water, for, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Would you pray with me? Father, we look to you this morning, having heard that you are the God who speaks, having taken comfort in what you have spoken to us in your Son, having great assurance that your promises never fail and that your word always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it forth. And Father, we recognize that what we have just heard and what we are reading and what sits before us on our laps is not the words of man, but it is your very word. So Father, we pray and we ask that you would help us to receive it in faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives. 
Lord, we're dependent upon your spirit for these very things. And we're confident that you delight to bring them about because of your good pleasure. Lord, do this for our sake and for Christ's glory, we pray. Amen. Of all the stories that you love to read, and of all the plot lines that you love to watch, think how many of those are stories of rescue. From the early fairy tales that you heard of knights and dragons and princesses, to modern warfare of elite military tactical groups, or to the heroic responses of first responders, how many of those are essentially stories of rescue? But why? Why do we love these sort of stories? And why do they so often find their way into our bookshelves or our media libraries? Why is it that we love to read them and tell them, and why do they resonate with them? And why is it that these themes continue to be the very themes of the stories that are read and told and watched? Why do we, as a people, resonate so strongly with this idea of someone in some some sort of impossible situation and that they are unable to do anything about it by their own power, that they are, in a sense, hoping for deliverance, and then we rejoice upon hearing or seeing their rescue. Now, keeping all of that in mind, is it any wonder, any surprise, that this same theme of rescue and deliverance marks the pages of our Bibles? The Bible is an anthology of rescue stories. Think about it from the very expulsion from the Garden of Eden to the establishment of the New Jerusalem. What we find essentially are the stories that have been written and spoken by people who have longed for and prayed for and experienced some sort of rescue that God has brought about. Some sort of rescue to bring people from bondage and out of slavery. And the opening paragraphs of Exodus really lay out in fine detail the same sort of images. If you remember back to last week in chapter 1 as we began reading there, that we simply heard of a people who are in bondage, they are enslaved, they are trapped, and they're without any foreseeable hope for change. And these themes are central, not just to understanding the book of Exodus and the accounts that are going to be told here, but to understanding your greatest problem. And for me to understand my greatest problem. And have you noticed, for all of our supposed freedoms, and for all of our many luxuries in the culture that we live in, we remain a people enslaved and embittered and ultimately unable to rescue ourselves. Friends, we are not that different from the very description that we see here in the opening pages of Exodus. And what I want us to see is not simply the likeness to their condition, not simply that our great need for deliverance is certain, but to ask the question, what sort of deliverer do you ultimately need? And is God sufficient to rescue Those questions are what are put before us in the first two chapters. 
And they are the wonderful answers that are given to us, not only here, but echoed throughout all of Scripture. Let's consider, first of all, in the portion that we just read, verses 11 through 25, how we are exposed to our great need for a deliverer. The context of chapter 1 sets up this painful reality of Israel's need for deliverance. The language, it just paints a very grim picture. If you even just glance back over the end of chapter 1, words like ruthless taskmasters. Life could be summed up at this point in no better terms than bitter, uh, harsh, and enslaved. And then added to this, the preservation, it seems, of God's providence and his hand upon this boy who would be called Moses, it sets up a certain anticipation of the story. Because we read of their bondage, and then the scene shifts to this boy taken out of the Nile, a baby that's destined to be drowned in this river, like thousands of others, is preserved in an ark basket, and he's found by Pharaoh's own daughter. And surely this man, as you begin to read the story, you begin to sense this man, he is destined for greatness. The stage is set, we lean in, and we wait to hear, how is God going to use this man to deliver his people? Because surely this is exactly what's going to happen in the unfolding verses. Notice, in fact, in this need of Moses' eagerness. Look back at verse 11. It says that one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. Did you hear the repeated emphasis? Moses looked, and he saw. He looked, and he saw. Now, he had been a man who was 40 years old at this point, raised, educated, benefiting from all the wealth and power of Egypt. But he'd never forgotten his Hebrew roots. He was living in the lap of luxury, but his own people, they're not far from his mind because Moses thought of these Hebrews as his people, as the text says twice. He went out to his people. He identified with them. He was becoming increasingly concerned for them. I mean, think about it. How many times would Moses and all of his benefits have walked among the labor camps of the Hebrews and seen the harsh conditions of their lives only to return to the comforts of his own luxurious palace. Being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, it would have afforded him all the privileges and luxuries and opportunities of Egyptian wealth, comforts, education. But at some point, this man Moses made a decision. This is why Scripture is so important to help us understand Scripture especially when the New Testament points back to Old Testament realities. The New Testament so often gives us the light we need to understand and interpret the narratives that we're reading here. And wouldn't you know that in the book of Hebrews, we are given insight into this very account in Exodus chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God 
than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The very one that took him in, rescued him, ensured that he would be nourished, educated, well cared for, and preserved. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and rather chose to be called a son of Abraham. He was eager to identify with God's people and somehow leverage his Egyptian privilege for their deliverance. Regardless of how he initially sought to rescue God's people, the scriptures, we have to see, commend Moses to us and exhort us to consider the motive of his eagerness. He considered the suffering and the mistreatment of God's people. On the other hand, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And he made a decision. Are we making the same sort of evaluations? Do you have a baking scale in your kitchen to where you can put a bowl on there and zero it out and then make these sort of evaluations and say, how much does this weigh? How many grams is this? How much do I need? Is this sufficient? Is this what I actually need in order to make what it is that I'm preparing? Is your scale set and balanced according to the wisdom of Scripture? Not according to your own experience, not according to what you believe to be true, but is your scale in which you make decisions of life set according to the directives of Scripture? Do you believe, let me ask specifically, that being mistreated, being thought of as a fool by aligning yourself with God's people is better than all the enjoyment of the fleeting, passing pleasures of sin? Do you weigh out the reproach of Christ and all the wealth that is yours for the taking and determine that the reward of heaven is better? Is your scale set to the, the sort of wisdom that Scripture gives to us. Paul said something similar in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that was a man who knew something about suffering. He would write to the church at Corinth, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Moses made a decision. He was eager to do so. But how many are deceived by the alluring pleasures of sin that only last for a season? How many would sell everything, literally cash everything in for a moment of pleasure passing by an eternity of heavenly reward. How many have bitten down on the lure of Satan's deception, unwilling to consider the barbed hook of sin's eternal consequences? Have you? When the choice is between sin or suffering, God's people willingly choose suffering. A Christian is someone who's tasted the bitterness of sin, and they see, while it does certainly promise pleasure,
pleasures for a passing moment, that pleasure evaporates and it leaves only this residue of shame and guilt and condemnation. The Christian is also one who has tasted something of the sweetness of heaven's reward and the journey they know that it may include earthly suffering and rejection and come at high cost, but in the end it is most certainly eternal joy, everlasting freedom, and perfect contentment. They know something of that too. Moses was eager and willing to identify with God's people, even if it meant mistreatment and rejection. This is the sort of deliverer that we're being clued into. But not only was he eager, we read something of Moses' expectation. Look back at Exodus 2, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And Moses sat down by a well. Moses looked, and he saw, and he had compassion on his people. He looked, and he saw, and he assumed that the methods of Egyptian justice would bring about Hebrew deliverance. So he looked, and he saw no one, and he took the opportunity to strike down this Egyptian and bury him in the sand. Now, from Moses' point of view, he had tried to act in secret to help one of his people, and he thought he'd succeeded. But from the standpoint of the Hebrews, and ultimately the Egyptians, this was not a welcome service. And again, the New Testament helps us interpret and apply this particular section in a very important way. Because Stephen would later recount Israel's history and include this section in a sermon of Acts chapter 7. Listen to God's word. When he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He, Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But when the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Stephen tells us by way of the Holy Spirit is that Moses saw himself as a defender of God's people, placed there to avenge wrongdoing. He thought, he assumed, his expectation is that his brothers would understand that God was granting them deliverance and that he was the man for the job. What did Moses imagine here? The sort of scenes that we often imagine when we step in and being hoisted up on people's shoulders and 
our name being chanted? Did he expect that they would start cheering for him, slow clapping his way as he comes back out to the sand? Moses expected to be welcomed as the great deliverer, but was instead seen as a bully and as a fugitive. Which leads us then to Moses' exile. Look back at verse 15 again. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses cuts ties with Egypt because he can't stay there any longer. He needed a place to find that ticked a few boxes. One, it had to be safe from Egyptian influence. It had to be friendly towards Israelites like himself. And not too difficult to reach from this northeast region of Egypt where he was seeking to escape from. And given the time, the limited time that he would have had to pack up and leave, the answer must have been pretty clear to Moses. I'm going to Midian. The Midianites were actually descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah. And so in a matter of days, Moses flees Egypt, goes to Midian. And in that short order of time, he goes from all the luxuries of Egypt to the isolation of a Midianite well, where we're told that he just sits down. But it doesn't take long for that very setting, at that very well, in that wilderness of Midian, that it becomes the necessary context now for Moses and his sense of justice and his sense and responsibility to defend others to again rise up and play out. Because eventually, seven shepherdesses, seven daughters of Ruel, lead their sheep down to the well. The local shepherds harass them and drive them away from the well. But again, Moses stands up. He rescues them, proceeds to water their flock. And now the flock, having been pastured and watered, the seven daughters return home and recount the news to their father. And just like any man with seven daughters, he responds in shock as to why they did not think of inviting this man over for dinner. Because clearly this man is marriage material and one of you seven needs a husband. Where is he? Can you hear his face palm before his daughters? Where is this man? And sure enough, Moses not only joins them for dinner, but eventually joins their family as he marries Zipporah and they have a son named Gershom. So what do we have here? Well, we have the one-time favored son of Pharaoh's daughter, now a sojourner in a foreign land, far from his people, far from his home, 
and really far from any sense in this narrative of beginning to think that he's actually the deliverer. But can you see something else? Can you see that even in his exile, in his sojourning in Midian, the Lord still loved and cared for Moses, even in the midst of his mistakes and assumptions and failures? From a human perspective, Moses has made a flat-out mess of the whole situation. But when he arrives in Midian to find refuge, he finds a home and a family awaiting him, all prepared by the gracious hand of Yahweh. Just as in the life of Joseph, we need to be able to see both things happening at the same time. God uses means, even flawed means, for his good purposes. God used Joseph, man's folly and evil, man's sin and unrighteousness for God's good purposes. Moses falls short of the ultimate perfect deliverer, but God does not abandon him. God actually prepares him for future work. Have you noticed in your reading of the Bible the important place that the wilderness seasons play within the people of God? How often the exile in the wilderness is a chance for this character, this man, or this people to meet his God. Being cut off from the rest of civilization, being reduced to the ordinary simplicity of just laboring for food and water and survival, a man is driven to dependence upon the mercy of God again and again and again through these seasons of wilderness. I mean, think about it. It was in the wilderness that Jacob saw the stairway descending from heaven in Genesis 28. It was in the wilderness that Elijah learned something more of his God, his provision. It was in the wilderness that Elijah heard the still small voice of this all-powerful God. It was in the wilderness that John the Baptist preached of repentance. It was in the wilderness that our Lord Jesus was tested and proven righteous. And it was actually in the wilderness that the Apostle Paul searched the scriptures for the Christ of the Old Testament in the wilderness of Arabia. But long before any of this, Moses went into exile in the wilderness and that he might learn something more of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Because in the very next chapter, which we'll get to next week, it's in this same wilderness that Moses meets the I Am. That Moses meets this God. That Moses is going to meet the true deliverer. How kind has God been to give you further teaching, refining, and equipping in seasons of wilderness? Christian, can you see that in your life? Seasons of wilderness, they are not easy. They're not at the top of the menu of what we plan for or even ask for. Because they're often humbling. They're often filled with trials. They're often where we are forced to see our sins 
and our shortcomings. But these same seasons are often the most fruitful and the most pivotal as we encounter the true and the living God and we learn something more of his holiness, our great need, and his great provision. Do not despise the wilderness seasons. Take up your Bible and read of how God graciously meets his people even in Midianite wilderness and what God reveals of himself to his people in such conditions. We should take the exhortation of the Apostle Peter to heart where he writes in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now Moses seems to have the very qualities that we would expect to find in a rescuer, in a defender, in a deliverer. But he falls short. He looks, he takes action, And that action results in the burying of a body and being rejected by his people. Now he's miles from Egypt. And over time, you can imagine the Hebrews back in their labor camps to begin asking, whatever happened to um, basket Moses? Or more soberly, you can hear them asking, whatever happened to the good that God promised to us? That need for deliverance gives way to the hope of a deliverer. Because look where the narrative goes next in Exodus 2. Not simply revealing the great need for a deliverer, but giving to us the hope of deliverance in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. For two whole chapters, we've been reading and hearing of the horrendous plight of God's people. We've heard of the cruelty of their taskmasters. We've read of the affliction of their heavy burdens, of their oppression and the ruthless way that the Egyptians have been enslaving him. Their lives were made bitter by hard service and in their enslavement. The people of God, they groan and they cry out for help. Do you know what it is to cry out for help? Have you known the sort of bitter circumstances, the hard providences that drive you to groaning and even tearful cries. Rest assured that God hears even the weakest of groanings. When our speech is beyond utterable words and our wounds actually leave us speechless, we are assured to know that as God's people, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Not only does God hear, but our great helper, the Spirit of God, aids us in our weakness. 
Friend, lean in and listen to and hear what Scripture reveals right here. The narrator interjects for us some very critical information as to what's happening behind the scenes. This is playing out in Egypt and Midian, but you need to know something else that's happening that you might not see with your physical eyes, something that the Israelites could not see with their physical eyes, something the Egyptians had no idea what was brewing, maybe something even Moses himself was beginning to doubt. God, by his Holy Spirit, interjects the sort of truth that would become undeniably plain in the coming chapters, the the very same truths that we need to hear and remind ourselves in the midst of our groanings. These are the truths that anchor God's people in the midst of great difficulty. And friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the same great truth that should give you hope in the midst of your very worst imaginable circumstances, because it tells you something of God. We're told that it's a God who hears, first of all. God is not deaf to the cries of his people. Even though maybe your past experiences or even present circumstances may tempt you to believe that God does not hear, what does God's word say? God is not deaf. He has heard our groaning. And that's been the testimony of countless saints through hundreds of generations. The psalmist says in Psalm Psalm 18, 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help, and from his temple he heard my voice. My cry came to him and reached his ears. Friend, you may be weighed down by all manner of anxiety and heavy burdens and circumstances where you are literally feeling pinned down, unable to move, and you can't do anything about it. You might even go so far as to describe it as bondage, where you've literally said that, where you see yourself as enslaved to not just your circumstances, but you, by God's grace, have come to see yourself enslaved to sin. Hear the testimony of God's word. When we cry out to this God for help, he hears. And he promises in Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. If you know that you are enslaved, then the first thing you must do is cry out to the God who hears. This is not only a God who hears, but we're told also this is a God who remembers. He remembers his promises. God heard the Hebrews. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, when we read of God remembering, we must not assume then that God forgot. Don't confuse the two. Read this as it is, is the language of accommodation. From a human perspective, if you were there in Egypt, living in real time, it would be very easy to assume from your limited perspective, it looks like God has forgotten us. And then in a matter of time, when you begin to hear of these plagues and you're walking through a 
sea that's suddenly been departed, you would most certainly say, no, God has remembered. Now, from a human standpoint, it would appear a season of forgotten and a season of remembrance, but that's not at all what the scriptures are teaching. The appearance from a human standpoint is that's exactly what is happening. But it's less upon the emphasis of God forgetting and more upon the emphasis that God makes promises and keeps promises. That's what a covenant is. It's an oath. Our God has gone to great lengths to communicate with his people by covenants. We find them throughout our Bibles. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And what the narrator tells us here is that he remembers that promise. The promise is to Abraham that, Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And through the promises of the old covenant, the fulfillment of the new covenant, it's brought forth. God was faithful to Abraham. He did send one that would bless all the nations. From this son that God sent through Abraham's seed, God is ransoming a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And so the great comfort in any affliction that we face, any heavy burden that we bear, is that our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his promises. He never forgets. He never fails. God will remember his promise, and that announcement of that promise is for everyone to hear. Do you know what it is? That God has provided his own son to be the sacrifice that cleanses the guilt and the wrong of the sins of his people. Whoever repents of their sin and believes in this son that God has sent most certainly will be rescued. Our God has made that promise. And he keeps that promise. And it's the same promise that's extended to everyone who can hear my voice this morning. This is a God who hears. This is a God who remembers. But we're also told this is a God who sees. Now remember the context. Verse 11 told us of someone else that sees. Moses looked. And Moses saw. Now in verse 25, we're told that God also sees. And he sees with perfect clarity. He sees his people. Just like Moses, he sees the oppression of his people. He sees the evil of this world. He sees the injustice within it. And he sees it with perfect vision. We go to sleep and we try and forget it. But our God never slumbers nor sleeps. Everything is open to his sight. Even the thoughts and the intents of our hearts are laid out in the open before him. Friends, just in passing, remind yourselves or those that are hurting Your hurt may seem hidden from human eyes, but God sees his people. And he is not ignorant, and he is not fooled by the schemes or the cover-ups of mankind. He sees. And do you know what else? It says that he knows. That's the last thing that this says. This is a God that knows. It's interesting that the narrative opened with this statement about a new king that came into power king that did not know Joseph or his people. But now we're told of this God who not only sees his people, but he knows. 
how many of you have found this to be by experience, that there's really no greater comfort than to be able to pour out to your heart to someone who's even just sitting there in silence, having someone draw near to you and just simply say, I know, I understand. Why do we care about bedside manners of nurses and doctors? Because in our weakest moments, we don't want someone who's detached or callous in pain and weakness. We want someone who can come alongside of us. Ultimately, what we're longing for is someone to say, I know. And what we're told of this God is that he knows. This is a God who looks at his people in the midst of their pain, and he can say, I know. The psalmist knew this. Do you know this promise? Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the mornings and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. This is a God that most certainly knows. And that he knows his people. What kind of deliverance have we been given? A deliverance that comes by the same God who hears, who remembers who sees, and who knows. And this is of the greatest comfort when we remember the ultimate expression of these very same truths. The ultimate expression of this knowledge, of this promise, and of this care that is proven, the fact that the Father has given His Son, the Lord Jesus, to testify of these very same truths. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. And what do you see in our Lord Jesus that teaches us about our Heavenly Father? Well, you hear in Jesus that he most certainly hears the cries of burdened sinners. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We find that he does not forget us, but he remembers us according to the promises of the covenant of grace. He bears us up on his own chest, just like the Old Testament priest would take up the people of Israel upon their garments and bring them before their God. Our high priest ever lives to make intercession for us as he bears us up, not forgetting us, but ever lives to make intercession for us. And he is the one who sees our condition with perfect vision. Nothing's hidden from his sight. His promises are right. And every wrong will be corrected. Every tear will be wiped away because of this Jesus who sees with perfect vision. And he knows. He knows because he's the sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in all points. As you are. As I am yet without sin. So of all the people that could ever presume to say, I know, the Lord Jesus is the perfect one who most certainly says, I know. And he is able to bear us up in our weaknesses. So what sort of deliverance do we need? What's the greatest sort of deliverance that we could have ever imagined? One that includes the rescue from the bondage of sin and the oppression of a cruel enemy. And what kind of deliverance have we been given? Well, it's the greatest deliverance that could ever be provided. It is the one that God alone can provide. And he has. So let's look to him. Our God and our Father, we find great comfort to discover just who you are and what you have done. And the grace that has been revealed to us in our Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy, and your grace as you stoop down to hear the cries of sinners and that you respond with the greatest of all promises and the greatest of all comfort. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances, even in the midst of our sin and rebellion, that we would hear the promise of the gospel, that we would hear the assurance of what is guaranteed for sinners who look to you and who trust in you. Thank you for the kind provision that is revealed not only in the pages of Scripture, but it's revealed ultimately in your Son. Help us to trust him in whatever season we may be in, and help us to glorify him in all of our circumstances, we pray. Amen.